You all know the Easter story? If you don't, chances are you can find out pretty quickly, right? There's dramas, movies, books, songs, all of this material about the Easter story. If for any reason, any chance that you actually haven't heard this story before, you can find the cliff notes right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In two verses, it tells you the Easter story. Let's read it. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. This was Paul, the Apostle Paul, who, if you've been with us for a while, we just finished the book of Acts. We know quite a bit about Paul. This was him writing to the Corinthians, the guys in Corinth, who, well... They had a a lot of issues, I guess you could say. And one of them was that there was this philosophy going around, even inside the church, that maybe people don't really rise from the dead. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in particular to strengthen these guys to say, hey, think about this. Have you thought this through, this idea that even though you believe in Jesus, that you don't believe in the resurrection? So we're going to be looking at that today. But this is... The Easter story. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That means Jesus died for my sins in my place. He was buried in my place, and he rose again in the flesh, living and breathing on the third day. His resurrection validates all of his claims about himself, like When he said, I and the Father are one. When he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father but by me. It validates all the claims that he was, is the Son of God. And it proved that he was victorious over sin and death. The sin, my sin, and the death that I deserve. He is risen. Chicky, I fooled you. He is risen. risen All across the world this morning, there are Christians in thousands, maybe millions of churches, thousands of churches, that are proclaiming that fact. He is risen. He is risen indeed. But is it true? I mean, who's telling the truth about Jesus? You guys notice as we get closer to Easter, in the last few weeks, there's a lot of people with a lot of different opinions about Jesus. Matter of fact, I was noticing this already, but yesterday, this this man named Daryl Owens in the Orlando Sentinel, he puts it this way. He says, if Easter is near, can attacks on the Christian faith lag far behind the Easter bunny? March may have padded in like a lamb, but it roared out like a liturgical scarfing lion lifting the gate to a spate of studies that, on their face, maul prevailing Christian belief. And he goes on to talk about the the first thing was that that there's this huge study on prayer and that it doesn't work. And then there was this guy at the University of Florida that says, well, yeah, Jesus walked on water, but it was really ice, which I don't really understand how Peter, how it was such a test of faith that Peter did that. Then... As I'm, as I'm going through last week, there's, 
I, I walk into a bookstore and, and I see this guy reading a book and it says, The Jesus Papers. And that the uh, headline, you know, the uh, subtitle was, Exposing the Greatest Cover-Up in History. And apparently the guy who wrote this is the same guy that's suing Dan Brown for the Da Vinci Papers. Or Da Vinci Papers, the Da Vinci uh, Code. But at least Dan Brown is admitting that his book is fiction. Well, sort of. This is from Wikipedia. This is not a Christian source. This is Wikipedia. It says, Dan Brown's use of complete fiction and his provocative handling of the Catholic Church have stirred widespread criticism. Part of this argument stems from the book's opening claim. Fact. All descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate. Much of what he wrote is factually inaccurate. Historians argue that Brown has distorted and fabricated history, and art historians and other readers complain of sloppy research and inaccurate descriptions of numerous works of art and architecture. In a 2006 court case, actually I think they just finished up, Dan Brown stated that he was not much of a detail person and had relied on his wife to carry out much of the research for the book. In addition, since the book is marketed as a work of fiction, there is no expectation that Brown documented or defend his assertions or hold them up to peer review. However, Brown has stated on at least two occasions in television interviews that everything in the book was true and accurate. So he, he kind of wants you to think that maybe some of it's true, but he can stand behind the idea that it's, it's a fictional work. Man, a lot of opinions about Jesus. Matter of fact, so I could go on. You guys probably like, well, we want to get out here before too, but U.S. News and World Report, Christ's mission. Oh, we, we didn't even talk about the Judas uh, gospel, the gospel of Judas that's out now, right? Um, there's all these things that, that happen to come around Easter. And uh, I'm looking through this, the Christ's mission. It talks about basically uh, everything that you've understood about, about Jesus is, you know, bogus. And it says... Uh, you know, you go through and you see the headlines. Uh, the, the author of this book, The Jesus Dynasty, James Tabor, says, I don't think Jesus taught that he was the Savior. Believe in me and you'll be saved. Um, and if it had been vital to the early Christians to have a literally accurate picture of Jesus, they wouldn't have kept all four Gospels. All of this stuff that's basically saying, well... You know, Jesus is, is a good guy and stuff, and we can learn a lot from him, but the whole history thing, come on. That's what, what we're hearing today. So Dan Brown confesses that his work is fiction, but what about the resurrection? Is it fact or is it fiction? Is it a hoax or is it history? Now, that's a really important question. <laughs> I don't know if you've really thought about this, but this is a really important question for a host of reasons. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the chapter we're in. Look down at verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then also... Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. There's a whole list of reasons why it's really important to decide whether this account of Jesus' resurrection is real. Look at verse 14. Basically it says, if Christ did not physically, 
actually rise from the grave, then our preaching is empty. Paul says, if, if he didn't rise, then everything I've told you is completely bogus. It's been a waste of time. He says, also, your faith is also empty. For you guys, that would mean Sunday mornings, Thursday nights, all the money you've spent on Bibles, every dollar you've put into the, the offering back there. It's all an empty lie. All the, all the Christian CDs you listen to, it's all a lie. Verse 15, he says, if Christ has not risen, we're found false witnesses of God. And you know what the penalty to be a false witness of God was in the Jewish nation? They'd stone you to death. Paul actually had been stoned a few times. He's basically saying, hey, if this isn't true, then, then they were right to stone me. Verse 17, he says, if Christ has not risen, you're still in your sins. Every sin you've committed in your whole life is still upon you. Verse 18, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Christ hasn't risen, then all of your loved ones, those whom you comforted yourself at their funerals, they've perished. I mean, at best, there's no reunion, and at worst, they're in hell. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Paul says, if, if Christianity is just about making this life better, then of all men, we're the biggest losers. This, this is a room full of losers. You guys might be thinking, well, that's true anyway. But <laughs> If Jesus hasn't risen, then... People are right when they think, oh, bless their hearts, those Christians, they actually believe that there's life after the grave, so they're wasting their years following this myth, this legend. Then look down at verse 32. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now that was actually the Epicurean philosophy. That was what they promoted. They're like, hey, there is nothing after this, so go for it. Party. Okay, I admit it, I listened to Prince way back when I was, you know, Younger. Good songs, you know, but there's that song, 1999, right? And when, and this was what, in 1980 or whatever, when they're looking forward to, to 20 years from now. Oh, they say after uh, the, the year 1999, there's nothing. So he says, I'm going to party like it's 1999. That's the Epicurean philosophy, right? Which is, if there's nothing after this life, why not get stoned, get hammered? Get wasted. Why not do whatever in the world you want? Matter of fact, if there's nobody to, to answer for after this life, and I like the looks of your car, why don't I kill you and take it? If there's nothing after this life to answer for. This, this question of resurrection is pretty important. It's the cornerstone of our faith. It's central to the Christian faith. It's what sets it apart. You guys know there's no other religion that claims that its founder rose from the grave, right? Not Buddha, not Muhammad. I mean, why serve a dead Savior? I found this in my studies this week. It was a true instinct that led a leading and brilliant agnostic in England to say that there's no use wasting time discussing the other miracles. The essential question is, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Adding that if he did it, it was easy enough to believe the other stuff. But if not, you have to dispense with the other miracles as well. If you can disprove the resurrection, then the Christian faith falls like a house of cards. But on the other hand, what if it is true? 
Tory said, it is the cornerstone of our faith, yes, but if it's true, it's the Gibraltar of our faith. It says, if it's true, it's the Waterloo of the atheist. If it's true, then my sins really can be covered. Then funerals can come from hopeless to filled with hope. Then Christians, of all men, aren't to be most pitied. They're to be most envied. If it's true, then it shouldn't be, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But let's live a life that will please God, for tomorrow we live. If it's true, then this isn't just the, this isn't the end. This is the beginning. So this whole resurrection thing is pretty important. Would you agree? Yeah. So what evidence do we have that is true or not? Well, first of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, we have the scriptures. Look at verse 3 again. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to... To the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Paul wrote this. They, they think in about, uh, I think it's 40, 45 to 50, something like that A.D. Paul says that both Jesus' violent death and his victorious resurrection were predicted in the Old Testament. When he says the scriptures, he doesn't mean the New Testament. For him, the scriptures are the Old Testament. He says, basically... Jesus' death was, was predicted, Psalm 22. If you're, if you're looking for evidence, write down Psalm 22. Isaiah 53. Psalm 22 was written by David. Isaiah 53 was written by Isaiah. And that his resurrection was predicted, was pictured in Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac. And that his resurrection was also pictured in the book of Jonah. We'll get to that in a little bit. Paul says if you're considering weighing all the evidence, first thing you want to notice is that the Old Testament predicted Jesus' death and his resurrection. Old Testament predicted, pictured, prognosticated hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked the earth, predicted his death and resurrection. What are the chances that David, that Isaiah, that Moses and Jonah and many more would all predict something that would happen to a man who purports to be the Son of God hundreds of years before he walked the earth. What are the chances of that? But come on. We live in America. We need more proof than that. Okay, well, how about, how about some eyewitness testimony? Would that work for you? What if I could introduce you to someone who saw him die with his own eyes, saw him buried... And later saw him walking around in flesh and blood. Would, would that be enough? If we had an eyewitness? Okay, I call to the witness stand. Or rather, Paul calls to the witness stand, Peter. Look at verse 5. And that he was seen by Cephas. That was another name for Peter. This is the real historical Peter. No one denies that Peter existed. That he followed this itinerant preacher, Jesus of Nazareth. Paul says, okay, you want proof? And he's writing to the Corinthians. Peter's still alive. Paul says, you want proof? Ask Peter. You know, the guy who denied Jesus on the day of his death? He denied him then, but he won't deny him now. Ask Peter. See, shortly after Jesus rose from the grave, 
the, the angels met, met uh, Mary, I think it was, and said, hey, go and tell the disciples that he, he lives, that he, he's risen. Oh, and tell Peter too. And Peter's probably like, what does that mean exactly? I mean, I denied this guy. Am I in big trouble? And Jesus meets with Peter. I mean, I'm thinking that Peter would be very nervous, but we, we know through the scriptures that he found forgiveness. Right? This failure, Peter, found forgiveness when he met the risen Christ. So there's one witness. Next up on the witness stand, the end of verse 5. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Well, technically the eleven. Judas had hung himself by this point, so he was tied up at the moment. Sorry. They were known, though, as the twelve. As a matter of fact, if you were being really technical, you would say the ten. Because the first time that Jesus showed up to this group of believers or confused people, he showed up and Thomas wasn't there. Right? Thomas missed the first appearance. He was the guy. Thomas said, hey, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my hand, my, my finger in his handprint. Right? Unless I can put my hand in his side. I'm not going to believe. And then Jesus shows up a week later and says, Thomas, here I am. Put your hand. Right? And Thomas like, uh, no, I'm good. <laughs> He's like, my Lord and my God. He believed because he saw him as an eyewitness. Next up on the witness stand. After that, he was seen by over what? 500 brethren at once. Okay, the witness stand is getting crowded. 500 witnesses. Most likely in Galilee. Jesus had come and said, go and tell the brethren, tell them to meet me in Galilee. And by putting the, the uh, accounts together, we assume we have a fairly good indication that it was in Galilee that he showed up to 500 people at once. Now, you guys, you can't talk to these 500 people today. But remember, if you're a Corinthian who's received this letter, and Paul says, hey, there were 500 people that saw him at once, end of verse 6, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Paul says, yeah, some of the guys have died since, since uh, they saw him, but most of them, the greater part, are still alive, Paul says. You can, he's talking to the Corinthians. He says, you guys can go check this out. Go, go down to Galilee and, and start asking questions. Start interviewing people and saying, did you really see Jesus? Yeah, me. And there's a whole bunch of us. Paul wrote this epistle, right? 45, 50, 52 A.D. At the time, he said, look, most of these eyewitnesses are still alive today. Some have fallen asleep. In other words, died. But the majority... You Corinthians, you could interview yourself. So, so far we have 512 witnesses that were, when they were living, willing to testify to the resurrection. They would tell you, basically, we the undersigned do solemnly swear before God that we did, in fact, see Jesus living, walking around, eating, preaching, laughing, living after this crucifixion. After the Roman army crucified this man. Let's put it in today's terms. Let's say that you are called for jury duty. Anybody got jury duty coming up? You? Yeah, okay. So uh, let's say you, you come to jury duty tomorrow. 
The case before you is a one of theft, we'll say. The uh, accused man is named uh, Jesus. Supposedly, he's been caught stealing an antique from Renninger's. The prosecutor calls the first witness, Peter Fisherman. He says, Peter says, without a doubt, Jesus stole the antique. I saw him do it. I know it was that guy. Without question, Jesus did it. And then ten of Mr. Fisherman's associates come up one by one, and each one says, no doubt, definitely, I know him. I saw Jesus steal the antique. Some very small details were different among the twelve, but actually that only serves to corroborate that they haven't gotten together to work out their story. Very small differences. Then there's this consensus among the twelve, definitely. Yeah, Jesus did that. And then the prosecutor calls not one, not twelve, but five hundred witnesses. Five hundred different eyewitnesses to the stands. It takes a long time to get through the depositions, right? It takes a week maybe to go through all these five hundred witnesses. And they all say essentially the same thing. I saw him. Jesus did it. What conclusion would you come to on the jury? 513 witnesses all agree? Yeah. Jesus did it. Shouldn't that be the same conclusion that we come to? Jesus did it. Jesus really did rise from the dead. You want more proof? Okay, how about a hostile witness? Someone who was not really one of his believers to start with. Say a family member. Someone who didn't believe in all this son of God stuff. A family member, maybe someone who, if there was dirt on this guy, could uncover it. Verse 7. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. James was Jesus' half-brother. Same mom, different dad. James was the one person in history who no doubt would truly, had truly grown to despise the phrase, why can't you be like your brother? <laughs> James was an unbeliever. You go through the, the scriptures and you see there's a place where Jesus' mom and his brothers come to him and, and they think he's out of his mind. James was an unbeliever until he met the resurrected Christ. His half-brother turns out to be the Son of God. So you put James on the witness stand. James, can you give us any dirt on this guy? Well, no. But the whole Son of God thing, come on. I mean, we grew up together. We skinned our knees together. Well, when, when he skinned his knees, did he cuss? No. Oh, wait, here's some dirt. When we played cops and robbers... I killed him and he never stayed dead. Oh, wait, that's not a good example. James grew up with Jesus. If there was any evidence whatsoever that Jesus was anything other than the Son of God, James would know it. But he didn't believe it just because it was too hard to imagine. Okay, yeah, I've never seen this guy mess up, but it's just too hard to imagine that my half-brother would be the Son of God. But those of you who went through the book of Acts with us, you saw toward the middle, the end of the book of Acts, who's leading the church? James. 
to leave the church, you pretty much have to believe that Jesus rose again, that he is who he says he is. Why? Because Jesus came to him in the flesh, and that changed everything. You read the book of James, and you see this reverence that this man has for his half-brother. It's amazing. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. There's more witnesses. Verse 7. This probably, when it says that then by all the apostles, this probably refers to Matthew chapter 28 and Acts chapter 1, where Jesus comes to this band of believers and says, he commissions them, he says, go now out into all the world, spread the gospel. He meets then with all the apostles. Then verse 8, then last of all, he was seen by me also, as one as by one born out of due time. Paul himself, who was another hostile witness, by the way, right? He went around killing Christians. But he met Jesus in person, in flesh, as well. Paul was an enemy, and he met Jesus, and it changed everything. So with all these witnesses, you can only come to really one of four conclusions. Number one, the resurrection is a legend Number two, the witnesses were liars. Number three, the witnesses were losers. Or number four, Jesus is Lord. Legend, liars, losers, or he's Lord. First one, the resurrection is a legend. Not a hoax, not history, but a story that just has developed over time. One that distorts, one that inflates, one that infiltrates the facts a bit. Well, the problem with that, that theory is that legends take time to form, don't they? Right? Legends happen long after death, not only of the subject, but of his contemporaries. Legends don't happen while their contemporaries are still alive to say, hey, wait a second, it didn't happen that way. On the contrary, the witnesses, the ones that would have refuted this legend, were the ones that were writing and writing profusely. There's all sorts of things written as to the facts of this case. It couldn't be legend. No, no serious scholar considers the resurrection a legend. It just doesn't fit into that category because of the timing of it. I mean, the Gospels, the, the latest Gospel was written probably well before the end of the first century. You just don't form a legend that quickly without running into a lot of problems from a lot of witnesses. And there were at least, what, 500 that would, that would uh, argue with it. Josephus, he was a Jewish scholar. He was a reporter. He was embedded, reporter, embedded into the first century. He was a Jewish scholar. He wasn't a Christian. And he would never say this was a legend. He would say, no, these are the facts. These are the things that have been reported to me. So, legend, I don't think so. <coughs> Well, another possibility is that these witnesses were liars, right? They stole the body. They fabricated the whole Easter story. This one comes around every so often, right? A conspiracy theory. The, the Jesus papers, the one that I, I walked into the, the bookstore and saw right there, that's the latest incarnation of this idea. The, the guy who wrote the Jesus uh, papers says that he's, he's privy to some secret documents that the rest of us can't see. As opposed to the New Testament, where there are thousands and thousands of ancient manuscripts available for inspection, right? And copies, all sorts of copies that are really close to the original. 
for scrutiny. But if these witnesses were liars, co-conspirators, you have a much bigger problem than all that stuff. How is it that all these co-conspirators, the apostles in particular, were willing to die for this lie? We've used this before, but Chuck Colson, the guy that went to prison for Watergate, one of the guys, he said, we were men of power. We were men of power who pretty much could could rule the world. And as soon as this cover-up, the Watergate scandal, broke, it wasn't two weeks before we were all, I'm out, turning and running, right? Turning in, saying things about Nixon that no loyal person would, right? Colson said, basically, people just don't, they're not willing to die for a lie. He said, we, we weren't even willing to go to prison for a lie. He says, but the apostles, you guys know about the apostles? With the exception of John, every single other apostle died a martyr's death. Andrew was crucified defending the lie. Bartholomew either was beheaded or flayed alive and crucified head downward defending the lie. James the greater beheaded or stabbed with a sword defending the lie. James the lesser thrown from a pinnacle of the temple at Jerusalem then stoned and beaten with clubs defending a lie. Jude beaten to death with a club defending a lie. Matthew burned, stoned or beheaded defending a lie. Peter crucified at Rome with his head downward defending a lie. Philip, most likely crucified or beheaded, defending a lie. Simon, crucified or sawn in half, defending a lie. And Thomas, stabbed with a spear, defending a lie. And Paul, of course, the guy who writes this, who, as we're reading this, he he sent this letter to Corinth. A few years later, Paul himself will be beheaded by Nero at Rome, defending a lie. I mean, it's just too incredible that all these guys would suffer this gruesome death to defend what they know to be a lie. Just doesn't compute. Okay, well, maybe maybe it's not a legend. Maybe they're not liars. What if they're just losers? What if they're not legend makers? They're not liars, but they're deceived. They just, they're believing this thing, and they really believe it. But they're deceived. What if they're losers? For instance, like the wrong tomb theory. What if they just went to the wrong tomb? Well, that doesn't explain all the sightings. That doesn't take care of the 500 people that saw him. What about the hallucination theory? That 500 people hallucinated at the same time the exact same thing. I mean, that, doesn't that take more trust, more belief than the facts? What about the swoon theory? That he really didn't die? He just became unconscious? Well, if if you read the account of the scourging and the crucifixion, they, w- they would take these, just for the scourging alone, right? They would take these flagellums, have three or four uh, strands on them, filled with bone, rock. They would tear into the, the backs of the accused. And they would, a lot of these guys would just die from loss of blood, just from the scourging. Jesus went through that. Then, crucified... You die by a slow asphyxiation. 
Sometimes it would take up to two to four days, but the Romans had a problem because the Jews were very, very uptight about leaving a corpse up over the Sabbath. So the, the Roman soldier was given direction to say, make sure all these guys are dead. He comes to, to Jesus, who he's going to break his leg, because if you break their leg, they can't breathe anymore because they can't push off. He said, oh, oh, this guy's already dead. Well, here, just to make sure, I'll take this spear and I'll put it into his side, into his heart. And the scripture says that when he did, the, it came out, blood and water separated. That can only happen if a person is dead. I mean, the evidence is really clear that Jesus was dead. One thing the Romans knew was how to kill people. They knew how to kill people and to do it well and to do it precisely and to make sure that it was done. This Roman soldier was an expert at recognizing death, inflicting it. If Jesus wasn't dead before the spear, he certainly was after. Okay? Then if all these witnesses aren't legend makers, they're not liars, and they're not losers, you're only left with one conclusion. Jesus is living. Jesus is is living, and if he's living, and he said he was going to do this, and it came to pass, then he's also Lord. Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. Let me read to you from John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says an incredible thing. If you want to turn there, you can if you don't believe me. But John chapter 10, for all you you people are turning, you really don't believe me. No, just kidding. John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says... I and the Father are one. And the Jews that were listening to him, they couldn't take that. Verse 31 says, again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. They were ready to to kill Jesus because of this claim. Verse 32, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Verse 33, we're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus claimed to be God. And that that creates a situation for all of us. Jesus claims to be God. That's a really bold claim. And John 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. That, That brings three more L's to the picture. Jesus... And a lot of you guys have heard this argument before. It's the best one I can think of. If Jesus claims to be God, that makes him one of three L's. Either a liar, in which case he should have been stoned, or a lunatic, in which case he should have been put away, or it makes him really, truly Lord. And before Jesus was crucified, the Pharisees... Well, these guys, they thought, surely he's not, one, he's not Lord, so he must be either a liar or a lunatic. I mean, that's, that's the conclusion they came to. Most of us these days aren't comfortable with those two conclusions, right? We want to think of Jesus as a good guy, a, a good philosopher. But we're not really ready for the whole Lord thing, so we say, well, I don't know what to think, but these are your three choices. You don't have any other choices. Liar, lunatic, or Lord, because he claimed to be God. Before Jesus was crucified, the Pharisees thought, okay, well, he's a liar or a lunatic. So they asked him for a sign. Luke chapter 12. 
You can turn there if you want. Luke chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus says, You guys want a sign? I'm only going to give you one sign. The, the sign of the prophet Jonah. He says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says, I'm only giving you one significant sign. I'm going to be buried in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, and I'm going to come back just like Jonah was buried in that fish for three days, and he was spit out onto dry land. And what happened? That's exactly what happened. Jesus was three days in the heart of the earth, dead, buried, and he came back. It's not legend. The 500 witnesses aren't liars. They weren't losers, deceived by Jesus. Jesus is not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He proved it by his resurrection. He's Lord. If he was telling his, his, the truth about his own resurrection... You guys know what that means for us. That's why we're here. We're not the dumbest people on the planet. If he's strong enough, if he's righteous enough, if he's holy enough, if he's God enough to raise himself from the dead, then raising you from the dead is a piece of cake. Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 kind of sums it up. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let me, let me read that again with the proper emphasis. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, if Jesus was telling the truth about his own resurrection, then that validates everything he said. He really is the way, the truth, the life. He really has come that you might have life and that more abundantly. He really is the Son of God, the only begotten Son of the Father, given for your sake. He really has come that you might have life and that more abundantly, not only in this world, but in the next. He is risen. If you haven't trusted Him yet with your life, what better day? What better day than the day that we celebrate when he overcame the grave. Let's pray.